news story because I think it's extremely important um, before I get into the Word of God. And uh, we are going to be in Judges chapter 6 this morning. But I thought this article extremely important. It's entitled, China is Collecting DNA from the World's Population to Wipe Out Some Racial Groups. And this has been alleged by people of note. And this one um, is actually written by Gordon Chang, a um, well-known author. And he's, he's letting people know, and, and this news story says this, many countries around the world see China not as a friend but as a threat due to its internal and international actions. When the coronavirus pandemic hit the world, many people speculated that it was a new bioweapon developed by the Chinese authorities. Now another claim has emerged that says China is collecting DNA samples of people from the U.S. and other countries to wipe out certain ethnic and racial groups. And I can assure you it's not just China that's collecting DNA samples. Our own government has been doing this for a long time also with ill intent. They all have ill intent. If you think they're your friends and Andy Griffith is running the government down there in Mayberry, you're living in a fantasy land and you need to leave it. Let me say this, because as a watchman on the wall, I want to be clear of all men's blood in this regard in the regard of making Christ known to them and their need to turn from sin, but also in this regard, don't ever get the vaccine. Don't ever get the vaccine. And let me repeat that for you. Don't ever get the vaccine. What I've seen with most people, because I've told them, don't ever wear the mask. Don't wear it. Refuse to go along with that fiction. It's part and parcel of a huge evil plot. Don't you see that? It's not just a mask. Yet, 99% of Americans wear the mask. So I'm very concerned that they'll, though they say, but when it comes to that vaccine, I won't get that. I don't believe them. I learned a long time ago in my life, if a man decides to live his life through compromise, he compromises and compromises and compromises. And if a man decides to live his life on the basis of conviction and sound biblical principles, he'll live his life that way. And he'll see God's hand in his life. I always tell people, once you compromise and then something weird happens, things go sideways, how would you even know if you're in God's will anymore? You compromise. If you stay true to him, do what's right in his sight, Regardless of what comes your way, you know you're in his will. Understand? This is an important matter. So don't get the vaccine. And here's this. Don't go around and hire some company to do your DNA sample. Because these companies, many of them are owned by Chinese subsidiaries or Chinese companies, and they're accruing this data. I can assure you our government's accruing this data. They can get this data through hacking also. They already have enough of your data just through all the nonsense of how the government got involved in every inch of our lives regarding health care. Do you know your doctors and nurses are nothing but all government snitches? They're all government agents, every last one of them, because they all report everything, and the government is up to their eyeballs in all this stuff, learning everything about you. It's the government who wants them to ask you all those questions and get all that data, and they willingly, as the state's agents, do it. Wake up. Get a clue. Think differently. As per their recent report, Chang claimed that China China has the ability to collect very sensitive information about people from outside the country. They can do that by buying American companies which have DNA profiles, subsidizing DNA analysis for ancestry companies, and hacking. He said that internationally accepted QR codes for the travel in and out of China were another way the CCP government was expanding its database throughout the pandemic time. And that's what they're going to do. You want to travel? You're going to have to have your health passport. They're going to have all all the data on you locked into their information. This, This vaccine and what's going on with the government is something you should be concerned about. Privacy should matter to you. I know you've all been taught that privacy doesn't matter anymore because you just let everything hang out there on Facebook. But the truth is, privacy does matter. It does matter. So I encourage you to um, 
to think about these things. There's more I could say here, but anyway. Don't get the vaccine. Don't give your DNA to one of these ancestry companies. Don't help out wicked men in their evil. I'm going to continue now in the book of Judges, so you can turn there, Judges chapter 6, and you can stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to cover verses 1 through 6. Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Today we begin the story of Gideon, and this is the longest account of one particular judge in the entire book of Judges. It's three chapters, 100 verses. The next closest to that is the story about Samson, which is four verses less, four verses less than the story here about Gideon. The title of my sermon this morning is, When God Prepares for Battle and Picks a Fight. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Again, the title of my sermon is, When God Prepares for Battle, and picks a fight. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this time that we have in your word. And I ask and pray, O God, that you help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare this day, and that you use it for good in the hearts and minds of the hearers, and that we would live as faithful men and women to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You may notice that I entitled this sermon, When God Prepares for Battle. Not when man prepares for battle, but when God prepares for battle. Remember my sermon from two weeks ago on Judges 3, 12 through 30, on the topic of tyrannicide, the story there of Ehud? In that sermon, I pointed out something that John of Salisbury wrote in his magnum opus, Polycraticus. He was speaking about how tyrants corrupt the law in order to induce their tyranny upon the people, to dupe the people. And he wrote, and he said this, quote, In whatever way this comes to pass, in whatever way they corrupt the law, however that comes to pass, in order to tyrannize the people, In whatever way this comes to pass, it is plain that it is the grace of God which is being assailed. Remember, he had already established that the law of God was a gift to men. It is plain that it is the grace of God which is being assailed and that it is God himself who, in a sense, is challenged to battle. Unquote. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I read that just a couple of weeks ago. And here in Judges 6, we see that God is preparing for battle. The children of Israel have yet again, after 40 years of rest, gone into rebellion against him once again, following the ways of the, of the gods and the ways and gods of the pagan people there that were around them. And again, God has brought his judgment upon them Seven years under the oppressive Midianites, as we read in verses 1 through 6 here. The Midianites would raid their homes, take all food and livestock. The Amalekites would join them in these raids. Remember the Amalekites? They helped King Eglon back in chapter 3 to oppress the Israelites. 
So severe was the oppression of the Midianites here in chapter 6 that the Israelites had to hide in dens and caves and strongholds of the mountains. That, brothers and sisters, is severe persecution. That That's bad. That's severe judgment. So this was bad. And in this, the Lord is being challenged to battle. The Lord is being challenged to battle that He's given strength to wicked men in order to bring judgment and repentance for His people. If you know anything about God, when you read the Scriptures, He always then takes down the tyrants He raised up. Always. Once His people repent. So this is part of the preparation for battle. He brings His judgment on the land. That's part of the preparation. And what is happening to the children of Israel is the judgment of God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38. Remember in this chapter, God gives the blessings and the curses over the children of Israel regarding if they live for Him, they get blessings. If they don't live for Him, they get cursings. Only 15 verses cover the blessings and like 50-some verses cover the cursings showing God knows something about the nature of man, that he's given to rebellion against him and his rule. And in verse 38, one of the curses that would be brought upon them for the rebellion against him was, he said, you shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locusts shall consume it. And here the Midianites are symbolized as locusts, aren't they? as we read in our opening verses. They would come in with their camels, and themselves, they were like locusts on the land, the writer of Judges says. Also, verse 31, here in chapter 28, says, Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes. You want to live in rebellion to me, your enemies take over. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from before you and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies and you shall have no one to rescue them. This is the judgment of God. God has raised up the Midianites to judge His people in hopes that it will produce repentance amongst the people. This is preparation for battle. All this is preparation for battle. He is preparing the hearts of his people in the midst of this for battle also. Why? Because look what happens. They cry out to the Lord, don't they? They cry out to God. So Israel, verse 6, was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And even in this, the Lord is preparing for battle. He is preparing the hearts of His people for battle. And this involves judgment to produce repentance. Extremely important. The smugness, and listen to me now, the smugness, indifference, and adherence to their false religion determines the level of judgment a people will be subjected to. Let me repeat that for you, because it's a truth. The smugness, the indifference, and the adherence to their false religion determines the level of judgment a people will be subjected to. The severity of the judgment of God is determined by these three factors. Because of people that are smug in their form of religion and of people that are indifferent to the evils in their land and of people who adhere to their bogus form of religion as the true and right religion must be brought under judgment for repentance to be produced and to the level they have adopted these factors will determine the level to which the severity of the judgment must be. Because God uses judgment to get people's attention. The more smug, the more indifferent, the more they adhere to their false form of Christianity, the deeper and more severe the judgment must be to get His people's attention. To purify His bride. To reform her. And I submit to you, this is where America is in our day. 
God has been bringing his judgments upon us for decades. And yet American Christians remain smug in their form of religion, remain totally indifferent to the evils in their land, and severely adhere to their bogus form of Christianity. It is a Christianity that is incapable of repenting and reforming. Christ will always purify and reform his bride, and since she will not do so willingly, the Lord must use persecution and judgment to see it brought about. And such is where we're at in America today. And even in this, even in this, the Lord is preparing for battle in the midst of all the judgment. Notice what happens after the people cry out to the Lord. Let's read verses 7 through 10. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of bondage, and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. But you have not obeyed my voice. In chapter 4, the Lord brought a prophetess. Remember Deborah? Here in chapter 6, the Lord brings a prophet. And herein the church in America has failed. She is unwilling to call the nation to repentance. She is more interested in being light, more interested in being the sugar of the earth rather than the salt of the earth. She has failed to call this nation to repentance for decades and we're reaping the whirlwind because of it. She has taken on the ways and the gods of America. The American church has. She is a great whore. Understand, prophets don't just foretell, they also forth-tell. Their function is not only to tell what will happen, but they are also to declare the thoughts and ways of the Lord and rebuke men for their rebellion against his thoughts and ways. They are to give prophetic insight from the Holy Spirit and God's Word about something that has already happened or is occurring at the present, and they address it publicly. And that's what this prophet is doing here. He isn't foretelling, he's forthtelling. He's letting the people know why the judgment is upon them. God wants that clear in their minds. And this prophet is unnamed. And this too, sending this prophet, is part of the Lord preparing for battle. He is making clear to the people why there is judgment in their land. Notice verse 9. Here, Moses had defeated the Midianites after they and the Moabites had tried to impede the children of Israel's progress, which is all recorded in the book of Numbers. And now, because of their rebellion, they have to fight the Midianites all over again. Remember what it said there in verse 9? I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And that included the Midianites. And now they have to do it all over again because of their own rebellion. This generation has to step up and fight. So the Lord is preparing for battle, and he's making sure his people see things properly, that they understand their rebellion and see their need for repentance in a proper light. Not just because bad stuff is happening do they need repentance. Not just because judgment is in the land do they need repentance. The Lord uses that to get their attention. They need repentance because of their rebellion against God. That's what they need to repent of. They need to cry out to God for their own sins, for their own shortcomings, their own failures, their own lack of fealty and love for Christ. And all of us who name his name in America need to repent. And we need to call our brothers and sisters to repentance. And we need to call the men and women of this nation to repentance to cry out to God, to understand we are wicked. We are an evil people. So the Lord is preparing for battle. 
And he's making sure his people see things properly. All this is part of the preparation. And now the Lord appears to Gideon. And this too is part of the preparation. The Lord looks for a man to interpose. The Lord looks for a man to interpose. In American Christianity, we look for someone with notoriety. Someone well known. Someone with power and prestige. But the Lord's not like that. Notice who he decides to use. Look at verses 11 through 15. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. This may have been the best in the whole land. It was Gideon. His low-level form of resistance may have been the highest form of resistance at that time. He's threshing the wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites so they can't take it. So the Lord comes to him and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So God decides to pick a guy who's part of the weakest clan in the entire tribe of Manasseh and the weakest guy in that clan (laughs) in order to bring deliverance for Israel. Notice God doesn't look for someone with notoriety. Doesn't look for someone well-known. No man of renown. No man that other men boast about to have on their side. He looks for nobodies. He looks for those who are weak in themselves. Who wonder when God calls them, surely not me, surely there's so many others that you could use, Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and notice our calling as Christian men and women. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what the Scripture says. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. This is how God operates. Remember when he sent his son? We're in the season where we celebrate his incarnation. Remember when he brought his son? He didn't send him to the Ritz Hotel. He was in a manger, wasn't he? He didn't have all the greatest nobles show up and herald his birth, did he? No, some shepherds showed up and heralded his birth. God doesn't operate like man thinks or like the American church likes to operate and think. I've told my wife, how is it possible that God took some smart-mouthed, smug little punk from the east side of Detroit to write a book on the doctrine of the lesser magistrates that has taken the nation by storm. And interposition is being practiced again and again and again around the country. Again this week, I received emails from magistrates who have implemented things at the county level from reading the book. It's encouraging. That's how God operates. 
He takes an arrogant punk, a smart-mouthed kid, just like Gideon is here. Look at Gideon. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Right? I was the same way. Even as I sat in the jail cell, being prepared to be sent off to Teen Challenge, a Christian drug rehab program, and I was filling out the 30-page questionnaire, which they never got, thank God, or I would have never been let in. They asked me the question, what do you think of Teen Challenge after reading why it exists and all the rules? And I wrote in my arrogant, mocking self, sounds great if you want to be a monk. That's what I said. And I had many other arrogant responses in the midst of that. That song we sang this morning, I heard my mocking voice amongst the scoffers hits me right in the heart every time because of my arrogance, because of my insolence towards him. I was his enemy, and yet he loved me. Radically transformed me by the power of his Holy Spirit, and then uses me in ways that are not imaginable. Magdeburg Confession, now available in English to men for the first time in over 400 years. That is humbling. As the Lord prepares for battle, he finds a man. He finds a man. In verses 16 through 22, Gideon is now convinced that this is the Lord. Okay, so we know that this angel of the Lord didn't show up dancing on a cloud or have this bright aura to him, or, which, by the way, um, the angel of the Lord is representative of the Lord himself. Okay? And you see that in verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And it says in verse 16, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. So there was nothing at that point remarkable enough for him to realize this is the Lord speaking with him. And he wants some sort of sign. Show me a sign that it is you who talks with me. And verse 18 says, Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you come back. That's an astounding turn of events. Here's the Lord waiting for him to come back with his offering. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat. That's what our family's doing today, killing four young goats. Aren't we lucky, right? This will probably be my last forage into the world of goatness, and I'll be done with it. So Gideon goes in, prepares a young goat, an unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Okay, he got a sign, (laughs) didn't he? He got a sign already. And it says in verse 22, Now Gideon perceived, you would hope so, that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And he thought he was going to die because of it. The same thing happened to Samson's parents when we get to chapter 13. The angel of the Lord, they saw him face to face and they thought they were going to die. But look what the Lord says to Gideon. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. You shall not die. God is with him. He has a purpose and a plan for his life. 
He's not going to die. He must move forward with what God has given him to do. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abzerites. Now, beginning in verse 25, notice the Lord gets Gideon busy right away. And this is important. You cut your teeth. You go and you do things of ministry immediately. And God will show you what specifically He wants you to do. I remember when I became a Christian in Teen Challenge, two weeks of Christian, we're in a park, they gather in prayer in a circle, all men holding hands. Very odd for Matt Chuella. There's people all in this park, and I'm holding other men's hands. And we're not only just holding hands, we're praying to God. <laughs> in public, in front of everybody. That was like, wow, I made it through. Then they said, now you're going to take literature called tracts and you're going to walk amongst these people and hand them to them. And I was horrified. I was. I was just like, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) I'm going to go and tell people about Jesus out here at this outdoor brothel. (laughs) You know, the big party they were having. But we did. That's cutting your teeth. That's that's learning to do the things that are right to do as a Christian person. And then as you do that, God shows you particular things He has for you as your years go on, as your life goes on, as you just are faithful in those things. He shows you what to do. Understand what I'm saying? There was something else I was going to say about that, but it flew out of my mind. So God gets Gideon busy right away. But notice something even of greater importance here in verses 25 and 26. Look what it says here. It says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and make the sec- and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Here's what I want you to notice. First, notice the state of the three great governments, family government, church government, and civil government. We already know that civil government is in utter ruin. Their rebellion had brought it to that condition. There essentially is no civil government left in Israel. We also know that church government is in utter ruin. False worship is rampant in the land. The Israelites had created a syncretistic religion that mixed the God of the Bible with Baal worship. Baal worship was rampant among the Israelites at this time. In other words, the churchmen of their day were obviously utter failures, just like the churchmen of our day. Remember what Salisbury said of them in my sermon from Judges 3? Quote, For the sins of a people cause a hypocrite to reign over them, and as the book of Kings bears witness, tyrants were brought into power over the people of Israel by the failings of the priests, unquote. It's the churchmen who are most culpable and responsible for the evil in the land. And we see this over and over again in Scripture and in history. So both church and civil government is in utter ruin. And here in verse 25, we see that family government also is in a devastatingly bad condition. Gideon's father was well off. How do we know that? They had servants. We'll soon see that Gideon, when he did what the Lord told him to do, took ten servants with him to accomplish it. So his dad was a man of means. He was a man of note. 
And it was his father who set up the altar to Baal. It was obviously in some public spot, not just sitting in the back behind his shack on his land, because all the people know that it's been messed up when Gideon demolishes it. So his father was of note. His father was the one who actually put up this altar to Baal and set up the Asherah pole next to it that Gideon was to tear down. So all three of the great governments, family, church, and civil, are in utter ruin. And as all three of these are to produce within the individual self-government, this young man, Gideon, lacked good character. He lacked good character until he met the Lord, until the Spirit of God came upon him. The Lord changes men. The desire by some to remove the three great governments in our day, whatever you want to call it, anarchism, volunteerism, stupidity, whatever you want to call it, the desire by some to remove the three great governments and rely simply on self-government is an utter absurdity which I have addressed in the past. In this situation of tearing down the altar of Baal, we see how God picks a fight. We see how God picks a fight. He sends his people off to confront the idols, evils, and tyrants of their day. That's how he picks a fight. He picks a fight out of people acting faithful to him, denouncing the evil in the land, not sitting indifferent to it. A good fight is always rooted in theology. And if you forget everything else I said, remember that. A good fight is always rooted in theology. Gideon exemplifies what we see with God's people throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. They confront the idols, evils, and tyrants of their day. Gideon did, and so must we. So must we, even though we live in the midst of a weak, effeminate, accommodating to evil form of Christianity. Even though you live in the midst of that, you must be different and confront the idols, evils, and tyrants of the day. You must be part of the Lord's picking a fight. And notice good theology, good Christianity... God's people always build something in place of the evil and idols. Verse 26, they built an altar to the Lord. They just yell at the darkness like some in Christianity are wont to do. But they gave remedy, which God's word addresses all matters of life and can give remedy to any situation. And in this case, the remedy was true worship, a proper altar being built. In verses 27 through 30, the scripture says, So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So he still had fear of man. Notice the Spirit of God hadn't come upon him yet. We'll see that in verse 34 when he's going to be sent off to do a far larger project for God. Here he's being used of God to pick a fight. So he still fears man. So he doesn't do it during the day. But he fears God enough that he knows he better do it. So he does it at night under the cover of darkness. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Cut down the wooden image that was beside it. So you all see what's happened here. He's cut it down. It causes no small stir. We should desire to cause no small stir for Christ. 
And look at the response of Gideon's father, Joash, in verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Now here we see that Gideon's father doesn't seem to be a true believer in Baal, does he? Notice he says, if he is a god, let him defend himself. It seems as though Joash was going along to get along. Baal worship was popular, big among the oppressors, big among the ruling class, big among the political class, big within the media, <laughs> big within the among the elitists, right? Everybody's into Baal worship. What's wrong with you if you're not, right? But there seems to have been something within Joash that there was just this little piece of resistance left in his heart. So that when the people of the city gathered together and wanted to kill his boy, he stood up and spit in the face of Baal. He spit in the face of Baal. So he may have been going along to get along, just conforming outwardly, but not totally surrendered inwardly. And he needed this moment to rally his heart, to show that there was this latent resistance brimming under the public surface of conformity. Verse 11, of course, revealed some of that latent resistance also with Gideon threshing the wheat in the wine press. And here, too, we see that Gideon's father must have instilled some level of resistance in his own son because of his son doing that. And so here we see Gideon declared Jerubbaal, Jerubbaal, which means plead Baal's cause or defend himself. Herein we see how God picks a fight. By this act, the gauntlet has been thrown down. God is prepared for battle and he now has picked a fight. The battle is all rooted in theology. Theology is the only thing that gives any man the strength to stand, the grit to do what's needed and right. This act by Gideon exposes the idea that you can have peace through compromise as the utter nonsense that it is. And it is the watchword of all Christendom. Peace through compromise. This whore church in America has been calling for and clamoring for peace through compromise for decades, and the chickens have come home to roost. We're reaping the whirlwind of it all, the consequence of it all in our day. And yet they still sleep. The churchmen still but sleep in the eyes of their people, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Isn't that what the prophet of old said of the churchmen of his day? It's the same thing with the churchmen of our day. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. The Christians of our day love this thinking just so they can continue to imbibe upon their wealth and ease. They are more than happy to compromise and have peace so they can continue their pursuit of wealth and ease. I want to show you just one passage of so many and I'm probably going to end up doing a sermon on all this. But I want to share with you just one passage of how Christian people, the people of the Lord, think so differently than your average American butt-faced Christian. <laughs> Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. And look at verse 17. The Lord has just made Jehu king of Israel. Jezebel is about to be killed. And King Joram, who's publicly known as the king, is about to be killed also. 
So Joram didn't know if Jehu was coming with his army for the cause of peace or for some other cause. And so he set up watchmen to find out whether it was for peace or some other cause. And it says in verse 17, Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, that's where Jezebel's at, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, Get a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say, Is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Wicked men and weak effeminate men, like the churchmen, wicked men like the magistrates of our day, the majority of them, and weak men like the bulk of churchmen in our day, love to talk about peace. And what I love about Jehu is he's having none of it. He knows what wicked dogs Jezebel's priests are. He knows what wicked dog Jezebel is and what Joram is. He knows they're all evil, wicked dogs. And so he responds when he's asked, is it peace? And says, what have you to do with peace? He knows they're all about evil. They only want to talk about peace for their own advantage to once again dupe people. So he says, turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, the messenger went to them, but is not coming back. That's probably not a good sign. (laughs) Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, He went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So at this point, they're figuring out, this probably doesn't have anything to do with peace. Then Joram said, Make ready, and his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu, and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace, as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. That's how Christian people talk. That's how people who love Christ talk. Remember what it says in the book of Psalms? You who love the Lord hate evil. I see virtually no hatred of evil from Christian people. I see accommodation, appeasement, Justification, compromise, through and through is what I see. The better translation here of what Jehu said to Joram is, What peace should there be as long as the whoredoms of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so great? When there's evil in the land, there should not be peace. And those who tell you peace, peace when there is no peace are the phony prophets that were condemned by God Himself of old. This is how Christian men think and speak. What peace? They understand the evil. They understand the nature of wicked men. They understand their duty in the sight of God. They understand their duty regarding their office. Jehu had just been made king. This is how Christian men think and speak when they see evil in the land, but not the Christian men of our day, pansies and effeminate waifs that they are. Even when it comes to wearing masks, they comply and use the word of God in an evil fashion to justify it, saying we must comply to show love and not hurt our witness. 
while all the time breaking the ninth commandment not to bear false witness as they give credence to a lie. The mass are an implement of tyrants to procure compliance and conformity to an evil plot. And the churchmen are standing there saying, we should do it to show our love, to not hurt our witness. And they are liars. They are whores, traitors, liars, scum. Just as the churchmen of Gideon's day had failed and whored themselves out for hire, so are the vast majority of churchmen in our day. So the Lord has picked his fight. He's picked his fight. And verse 33 says here, back in Judges chapter 6, turn there. Then all the Midianites and the Malachites, the people of the east, gathered together and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. They knew a fight had been picked. And they were rallying. All the wicked are gathering. But look what verse 34 says. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abzrites gathered behind him. When God picks a man, though he considers himself inadequate, and any good man does, because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and within him, he fights. And you do understand the Spirit of God is within you all. When you repented of your sin and believed in Christ, His Spirit is in you. And when this happened to Gideon, he fights. And the Lord uses him for His purposes in the earth. And we must fight. We must not cower. We must do what's right. These brothers I talked to from Canada last evening, their church was going to stand against the mask until the journalists started going to the churches and narking on the people who had more than 30 people there and weren't wearing masks. And suddenly, they did a complete 180 and want anyone out of the church who isn't going to conform to what the state says. They decided not to fight. They decided to compromise. We must not be like that. We must take a stand for Christ, whatever comes our way in the midst of it. And as long as we do that, he will use that for his purposes powerfully in the earth. Do not fear man. I've always taught my children that. I remember one time we were surrounded by nearly a thousand insane people, all mad because of a sticker I was wearing on my shirt. pastor that was with us was all paranoid and we just kept declaring the truth of God's word. And when we left unharmed, praise be to God, I gathered my young children together. Sarah, my daughter, was one of them at that time. And I knelt down with them and I said, understand this, you never fear man. Ever. Only fear God. That's what makes you strong and bold and courageous is your love for Him. And we must be prepared, brothers and sisters, because there's a fight going on. It's already been picked. It's across the the land. And you're going to have to decide whose side you're going to stand on. Isn't it interesting that in the end, God only needed 300. (laughs) 300 that he wanted to get things accomplished. In the end, get, understand, all the other peoples came down from the hill country and joined in the battle. But there was really only 300 who had the heart to fight at the beginning. We must stay true to Christ. People are watching you. 
They're going to see how you unfold as the persecution mounts, as the judgment increases. They're watching you. Be faithful and true to our Lord. Amen? Stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in you and we give thanks to you for your goodness to us, that you have redeemed us. Um, We are not our own, O God. You have bought us, not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with your own precious blood. You have ransomed us. And so we do not live our lives for our own self-aggrandizement, our own self-initiative, Lord, we live our lives in service to you who died in our stead. And may we be faithful and true to you in the days ahead here, Lord. May we do right by you. May we declare your truth. May you give us favor, O Lord. May you bring friends to rally with us. Lord, we thank and praise you for your goodness to us. And we ask, O Lord, that you watch over each family represented here and that you continue to build your kingdom within each one's life. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. You can feel free to take communion with us. By the way, several of us went down for the Kyle Rittenhouse hearing this past Thursday. It was all on Zoom. But we joined with some other people out there and some BLM people all came out. And we ended up in long conversations with them, them. very heightened at the beginning, and then things calmed down. Totally reminded me of ministry at the university, how good that always goes. And um, there was a goodness there. And you need to continue to pray for Kyle. Um, All the forces of evil are against him. The magistrates, the media, all the wicked swine are all against him. And that's a lot for a 17-year-old to have on his shoulders. So let's be in prayer for him and that all the stones they want to roll upon that young man would roll back upon their own heads. You can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion as the Lord's table is only for believers to observe. We do observe his table every week at Mercy Seat. It was the pattern laid out by the early church, and we follow in that pattern. It's a goodness to us because it reminds us our sole means of approach to the Father is through Christ because the bread represents his body. The fruit of the vine represents his blood. There's nothing else at his table showing it's through Christ alone whereby we're accepted of God. The good works that we do, the holy living that we demonstrate, those things are the result of our saving faith in Christ. In other words, we don't do those things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do them because we have obtained his acceptance. Amen? And that's a huge, important distinction. There was an entire reformation over that very salient point. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great salvation we have through your Son that we should have been put to death for our sins. For the wages of sin is death. But you in your mercy sent your Son to die in our stead so that if we'll turn from our sin and believe in him, we can obtain forgiveness of our sin and right standing with you. And Lord, we thank you for this great salvation that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I ask and pray, O Lord, that we will live faithful to you with the days you have allotted to each one of us. May we do right by you. May we not squander our days on selfish pursuits. Arrest our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us a great hunger for you, a desire to live for you in the earth. 
And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Praise His name. Praise His holy name. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we rejoice in You and give thanks to You for Your goodness to us. We ask now, Lord, that You watch over each home here. Keep them. May each man be a priest to his home. May he take time this week to open Your Word to his wife and to his children and to sit and talk about the things of You with one another. Lord, we ask and pray that you be with each woman, that she would be an anchor in the home, O God, a goodness to her husband, to her children. Lord, we ask and pray that you be with the children, that you give each one a heart hungry for you. May they pick up their Bibles. May they read about you even on their own. May they desire to live for you from a young age, I pray. We love you and thank you for all your goodness to us, your provision to us, O God. And we ask and pray that we walk faithful to you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.